The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Whatever does a man do on an island like this for eight years? Devoted my strength to destroying the concept of warfare. Your profession, Captain Harding. Well, considering the ships and crews that you've sunk without mercy, you can't disturb my conscience. Can't I? What I did was in the name of peace. Your war, like all wars, glories in devastation and death. Oh, my war will set men free. That's a struggle that belongs to all men, don't you think? Just how have you been able to carry out your crusade, Captain, without the Nautilus in operation? I've been conducting experiments in horticultural physics. What do you want? Experiments that will guarantee mankind an inexhaustible food supply. You see, with the Nautilus, I was merely attacking the weapons of war. But now, I've conquered the causes, famine, and economic competition. Imagine wheat growing 40 feet high and sheep the size of cattle. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, May the 2nd, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. If ever I was offered some ideal test tube demonstrations, of why so many people remain so uninformed about socialism and capitalism, they were served to me on a silver platter over this past couple of weeks or so. You know, I'm beginning to think that in a way, Ayn Rand may have made a mistake in the naming of her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Maybe she should have titled the book, Capitalism, the Known Evil, that isn't. (laughs) Because capitalism is not unknown as such. It is known as something that it is definitely not, nor could ever be, while socialism is the real unknown ideal, quote-unquote, because it is the ideal that is constantly pursued. An ideal that even most of its own advocates would reject if they truly came to know the death cult that they call their ideal. And as usual, even those who condemn or criticize socialism still continue to be enemies of capitalism, leaving themselves in a vacuum of unresolved conflicts and without any solutions. Our demonstration begins right after I remind you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and, of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and, in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism in a world desperately in need of both, as will be explicitly and forcefully demonstrated on today's show. Now, a few shows back, we discussed socialism's many facades. That's because socialism appears in a myriad of forms, many individual components recognizable, yet with socialism's greater destructive ideology 
remaining invisible to its victims. For example, few would recognize socialism in government efforts to fight climate change. Yet so-called carbon taxes exist for one reason and one reason only, as forced wealth redistribution schemes. And that is socialism, my friends, not climate fighting. So let's kick off this discussion with a feedback comment posted in reaction to our show on socialism's many facades. And this was written by Doug F., who wrote, quote, We could discuss many of the subjects you bring up here, such as global warming or carbon tax, but as neither of us are climatologists or economists, let's leave that to the people who have studied these subjects for years. Instead, let's just discuss the right's quote-unquote misuse of the word socialism, since this is the basis of the post. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines socialism as any of various economic and political theories advocating collective or government ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods, or as a system of society or groups living in which there is no private property, or a system or condition of society in which the means of production are owned and controlled by the state. Clearly, none of these definitions fit what you are calling socialism. Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. In fact, even socialist groups argue he is not. That's for sure. He could be called a social democrat, but not a socialist. The same goes for the vast majority of the left. Perhaps the right likes using the term as it conjures up fear and misunderstanding in the general public, which helps strengthen their cause. The term far-right socialism is also a misnomer. After all, how can the right believe in socialism? Left and right are terms best dismissed as they are actually misleading and inaccurate. Even the terms liberal and conservative are used inappropriately. After all, there is a fiscal and social conservative, and sometimes the two do not work together. How can a conservative Christian be against providing support for the poor? How can a liberal who wants the government to provide support for the poor vote in a government that cuts spending so they're not taxed so much? Although I admit I used to believe in and support your ideals, with time, experience, travel, and education, I realize that without some form of social support and regulations on corporations, our society would utterly fail. Regulations stop things like banking system failures that the U.S. experienced under Bush Jr. Social supports bring help to those that need it, and if done correctly, can make them a contributing member of our society. On the subject of climate change, I'm not saying the whole system conjured up by the liberals is perfect, but to do nothing will just leave a massive financial and environmental burden for future generations. Thinking ahead, sharing the responsibility, that's not socialism, that's just the right thing to do, end quote. Well, I responded to Doug by saying this. Hello, Doug. Your comments contain so many contradictions, inaccuracies, and fallacies that it is difficult to sort through them all. I also take some exception to your opening comments since I've studied both climatology, informally, and economics, formally, and have additionally had the privilege of interviewing some of the world's leading authorities in these fields, from whose expertise I have drawn many of my own conclusions. These interviews can be accessed online at any time. If your intent is truly to, quote, leave that to the people who have studied these subjects for years, end quote, I would count myself among them. I know what I'm talking about, and I'm always open to being proven wrong, because my constant and only incentive for doing what I do is to learn what is just right. 
I have nothing to gain by pursuing any false points of view and have no crony interest to which to appeal. It's pretty clear that you've missed the whole point of this particular discussion and its context. I have no idea why you would possibly imply that anyone has suggested that social support or corporate regulations are not required, since no such case has been made, ever, on any broadcast of Just Right or in any commentaries I can ever recall. But to suggest that regulation stop things like banking system failures that the U.S. experienced under Bush Jr., when all the evidence has demonstrated that it was regulations that caused the banking failures, as was also the case with the Great Depression, it is clear that you are not applying the principle of regulation to any concretes, nor distinguishing good regulations from bad ones. Of course businesses require regulations within which to function. We stress this point constantly. Who has ever suggested otherwise? Your dismissal of the political labels, left and right, has some validity within the false framework of most public discussions, but not when the terms are being properly used, as is our practice. I must confess that I have never heard the term far-right socialism, though I agree that it is a contradiction in terms. But one cannot both argue the falsehood of that term, while in the same paragraph dismiss the very labels against which that argument is being made. If left and right should be dismissed, as you insist, then how can you argue against a term like far-right socialism or even be able to recognize that it is a false association without referring to the very term to which you object? You see the contradiction? As we have demonstrated many times over past broadcasts of Just Right, the use of the terms left and right is unavoidable, especially by those who continue to dismiss them. Therefore, the terms should be used with respect to their correct meanings, not according to the intentionally false meanings assigned them by the Social Democrats of the U.S. Democratic Party. We've discussed the history of this false labeling in detail on many past broadcasts. And for expertise on this, I would cite the works of Dinesh D'Souza and, of course, our own Salim Mansour, who have both been heard on Just Right documenting these very facts. All forms of collectivism, whether communism, fascism, socialism, progressivism, whatever, sit on the left while all forms of individualism, freedom, capitalism, individual rights, private property, etc., properly sit on the right side of the political polarity. While the three definitions of socialism you cited are valid as far as they go, and I myself have used them many times, they are far from being comprehensive and merely describe the status of property in relationship to the state and individual. They do not describe the concrete effects or practices of socialism. Socialism is the political means by which the various ideologies of collectivism are put into place, whether those ideologies are communism, fascism, or any of the other forms. For example, given the seemingly benign definition of fascism as state control, but not ownership of private property and the means of production, it would never occur to most that something like Mussolini's fascists or Hitler's Nazis would have been two natural outcomes of this kind of political structure. And for the record, Bernie Sanders is a socialist and expresses communist fascist ideals. The term social democrat merely describes the manner in which he would implement socialism, democratically, quote-unquote, just like Hitler did at first. It does not change the nature of the evil he espouses. People have every reason in the world to fear democratic socialism. 
So-called democratic socialism is not an end in and of itself. It is a road to socialism, as is demonstrated everywhere it has been tried. As to your closing comment on climate change, which in your opening you insisted we leave to the people who have studied these subjects for years, but did not do so yourself, <laughs> I'll offer the following observations. 1. Trudeau's so-called climate change plan consists entirely of taxing and attempting to reduce emissions of CO2, which is carbon dioxide, not carbon pollution, as is falsely repeated, and carbon dioxide poses no threat whatever to anyone. Indeed, it is beneficial to both man and nature. Moreover, carbon dioxide does not increase global temperatures. Increases in temperatures increase the release of carbon dioxide. Number two, Trudeau's so-called climate change plan consists of arbitrarily taxing carbon and then redistributing the money collected back to the presumed polluters. This is known as wealth redistribution, a critical component of all socialism and socialist planning, at least until the money runs out. Number three, climate change is a fact of life and always has been even before any humans walk the earth. Like all living creatures, we adapt to it, or not. I could go on offering a myriad of facts and arguments, all verifiable and rational, but since you've offered no such facts or arguments to substantiate any of your own comments, my guess is that any such additional efforts on my part will simply be met with the same continued virtue signals and derisions that are at the heart of your post. So what gives? What are you really trying to say? And that was the end of my response to him, and as of this recording, I still haven't received a response from Doug, but my guess is that he thinks that socialism is okay in some way, but is unable to express why. And that makes for a perfect segue into the next part of our discussion. Over the past weekend, Robert Vaughn sent me a link to a March 5th online post made by British comedian Alistair Williams, which he called History for Idiots, Episode 1. It was all about socialism, and most of our audio bites featured on today's show come from that post. Very much to his credit, Alistair Williams openly admits that he has no solutions to the dilemma of socialism to offer, nor does he offer any. But he does have an historical appreciation of the evils and failures of socialism every time it is implemented. And for me personally, Williams has offered yet another example of why I myself continually dismiss the notion that we learn from history. Because it's obvious we can't and we don't. <laughs> we can only at best be a witness to history and to the events of the past whose causes remain forever elusive as long as we keep avoiding and rejecting the only field of human discipline from which we actually can learn the lessons to be gleaned from what we've witnessed, and that is philosophy. Far from suggesting that history has no value, which is not what I'm saying, because knowing history is indispensable to our understanding of the necessary philosophical lessons, what I am saying is that, that the lesson, that is, an understanding of the eternal principles that are always at play within our historical experience, can only be determined by discovering the truth, which is the exclusive prerogative of philosophy. You ever, you ever go to a party... And somebody's going, oh, yes, uh, and socialism, and blah, 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 blah. And you think, I don't know what this guy is talking about, but he seems like an idiot, and I would like to embarrass him. Okay, give me 45 minutes. It's because, as it turns out, okay, I did history at university. I went to university, and I studied socialism for three years. 
and what I learned actually does fit into 45 minutes <laughs> I keep bumping into people and they're like I think that we should adopt socialism I'm like right what is socialism and they go um <laughs> I'm like you don't know like, oh no, I think, I know, it's not right. You want us to, it's like, let's all speak Japanese. Do you know how to speak Japanese? No. Right. Okay. Are you at all concerned that you might have lost your fucking mind at all? God. What is socialism? Because let's, most people don't know. And most people don't admit that they don't know. A socialism is the idea that we're all going to share all the resources in the world. It's all going to be split up evenly and shared. Okay, so we're all going to share. It's going to, it's going to, this is going to be a utopia. Right, everyone? No more super rich people? No. No, we're all going to be on a great. That sounds great. There's two problems with socialism. Number one, rich people are not that keen on it. Okay, you've got to ask a rich person. Do you want to share all your stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, take my Ferrari, please. No. And, but there are some rich people who are into socialism and you're just suspicious of them. It's like, oh yeah, I want to share all my stuff. It's like, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, let's share all the stuff now. Where do I sign? It's like, when are you releasing the poison gas, man? I don't trust you. Okay, that's the first reason socialism hasn't been properly tried yet. Is because rich people aren't that keen on it. The second reason... Uh, socialism hasn't been tried yet is every time they try it before the utopia can begin everyone starts starving to death and murdering each other and living in a god awful hell to be honest and socialists will not be drawn on this part of it like when someone says I'm a socialist you go what about the death they go oh listen I got a call coming in Right now, it could be Jeremy Corbyn. I need to take this. You know, you want to go socialist? All right. Okay, well, why don't we delve into why everyone starts murdering each other and starving to death every time you try it? Think of it as um, we're playing a game of Monopoly right now, which is what Monopoly is based on capitalism. If you don't know that, the guy who invented Monopoly was actually trying to demonstrate how terrible capitalism was with Monopoly, and everyone was just like, "No, we we like this. We, I'm having a great time." It's like, "Well, you just crushed your sister's dreams." It's like, "Yeah, that was awesome. I want to do it again as soon as possible." Right? We like capitalism. The problem is after you've been playing capitalism for a while only one or two people are really enjoying themselves the people that own the hotels like at the start of a game of capitalism everyone was having a great time everyone had about the same amount of money you know I'm going to own a house I'm going to own two houses go and try and own a house now go on it's impossible isn't it you try to own a house now it's impossible do you know why because we're at the end of a game of Monopoly unless you've got money for a hotel you're out of luck right pretty soon if it keeps going this way, the only place you're going to be able to afford to live is to go to jail. I'm telling you guys, this is the positive that socialism has. Okay, socialism is like flipping the board. Socialism is people going, you know what, f this. 
I'm fed up with rolling around, paying you, paying you, paying you. I ain't got a chance of owning anything. Let's socialise this bitch. All right, and that is not the fault of socialism. Okay, everyone just says, well, capitalism is a lot better. Yeah, okay, but how do we get to the point of socialism? How do we get there? Why do people decide to flip the board? Because there are some inherent problems with the current system that we have. And I'm not saying I know how to fix them. Remember, this is history for idiots. I'm just saying there is a reason why everyone is so depressed at the moment. Okay, people are hanging on right now. They're hanging in there. And you cannot blame that on socialism. There's a reason why socialism is becoming so appealing to young people. Right, because they're coming to the board. Right, and there's hotels and houses everywhere. And they're collecting... 75 pounds every time they go around the thing what are they supposed to think oh great yeah I can't wait to get involved in this imagine if you come to a game of Monopoly when they've been playing for 6 hours and you sit down with 1500 and there's red everywhere and you're just in jail in a hotel it's awful okay so that is why and when intellectuals say well how how does a society go socialist they always give this long mumbling answer well there's several economic factors things go socialist when people get pissed off that's the truth right and that is the danger behind a huge gap in income inequality and I see it happening now and I got a 2-2 and I'm scared god imagine if I went to lectures man if I got a first I would be petrified where are the real historians right now I'll tell you where they are Okay, I'd say when they're in an underground bunker somewhere, going, Jesus, best of luck, you guys. Basically, Alistair Williams has made the observation that socialism is perceived to be sharing and capitalism is perceived to be monopoly. Perception-wise, that carries a lot of truth to it. Reality-wise, not so. For example... You can't just refer to the idea of quote-unquote rich people in a vacuum. There are essentially two kinds of rich people. Those who acquired their riches through the use of force and coercion, and those who earned their riches by bettering the lives of others on a market free of force and coercion. And that's something that we call capitalism. Socialism is the idea that we're all going to share the resources of the world, says Williams. But that doesn't define the critical point of how that sharing is to take place. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, implicit in the meaning of the word sharing is that sharing is a voluntary action, not an act that takes place at the point of a gun being shoved in your face. But to fail to make the distinction between voluntary and forced is to give up all claims to any form of morality whatsoever and would open the world to a litany of never-ending horrors, which is exactly what socialism eventually leads to. As an example of why socialism leads to murder and starvation, the game of Monopoly actually offers a good, simple illustration, but not for the reasons intended by Williams. Because the game of Monopoly is a completely artificial contrivance. And if its purpose was to demonstrate how terrible capitalism is, Well, it failed miserably. If anything, the game of Monopoly is a better demonstration of socialism. Unlike a real free market of economic activity, it is based on the fixed pie theory, 
The board never expands, nor is it conceivable to the players that an expanded market should ever occur. It's not in the rules. In the game of Monopoly, the marketplace is fixed. However, given that the only kind of transactions in the game all relate to banking, money, and property, that can accurately be described as being capitalist, since property and money both concern capital, but not capitalism, two different things. Strictly speaking, a capitalist who exists under every kind of social system, including communism, socialism, fascism, and yes, capitalism, is a business person who deals exclusively in either money or property. You may have noticed that there are no farms, no factories, and no personal private business enterprises that rely on labor in the game of monopoly. Just banking and property. Again, each represents capital, but not capitalism, which is the name given to a free market by the greatest enemy of free markets, Karl Marx, who wanted to politicize an otherwise non-political concept. Another severe limitation that prevents monopoly from being an example of capitalism is that you have to roll dice, <laughs> which obliterates all elements of choice from where your game piece lands and has more in common with socialism than with capitalism. In the game of Monopoly, every player gets paid the exact same amount of salary when they pass go, yet another egalitarian aspect of the game. You know, the more features of the game I cite, the less and less it represents capitalism, and the more it represents a controlled economy, which is socialism. Now, Williams made a very accurate observation when he said, quote, every time socialism is tried, before the utopia begins, everyone starts to starve to death and starts murdering each other and living in a god-awful hell. Well, here again, socialism is always judged by its promised ends and never by its means. Because in the end, ends and means are always the same. Capitalism promises no utopias. As soon as you have capitalism, you've reached the end, and the ends and means are the same. Only in this case, they translate into personal and economic freedom, not the promises of free stuff. How do we get to the point of wanting socialism, asks Williams, because there are some inherent problems with the system we now have. I'm not saying I have any answers, he says, because this is history for idiots. <laughs> There's a reason why everyone is so depressed at the moment and why socialism is so appealing to young people. They're arriving at the Monopoly board too late in the game, he says. Now, this is a great observation, I think. And on the emotional level, he's nailed it. But the, quote, system we now have is not capitalism, but in our mixed economy has reached the point where socialism is now the predominant feature. Young people just entering the marketplace today find themselves burdened not just with having to support themselves, but everybody around them who depends on the income of the young to provide the benefits of those who have already escaped the Ponzi scheme, leaving them holding the proverbial bag. When people say that history repeats itself, that is the very process that continually repeats. Unfortunately, because they've been duped into believing that the problem is capitalism, they jump right from the frying pan into the fire of socialism. The game of Monopoly is very much like socialism in the Ponzi scheme sense, or the pyramid scheme if you prefer that term. At the beginning of the scheme, everyone's having fun and might even prosper. By the end of the game, only those who got in early and started the scheme come out the winners. That's the danger of economic inequality and disparity, says Williams, again, missing the real danger. 
what pisses off the young is not economic inequality, because they don't expect that. You're starting out in the marketplace. But economic poverty brought about by inequality of opportunity, choice, and freedom. Economic disparity, as such, is never a problem unless that disparity results in abject poverty. As long as most people have the basic necessities of life, economic inequality is a non-issue. In fact, economic inequality in a free market and a free society is best to be seen as equality of opportunity and equality before and under the law. Because you can always work your way up to a higher status economically. Fact is, some people will always work harder or be more successful than others, and that's a good thing, not something to be feared or eliminated. Capitalism is the economic dimension of individual freedom, and like freedom, it is conditional on the fact that that freedom must be shared by each and every individual. My freedom cannot encroach on your freedom. You've heard this expressed by, you know, in, in the saying, your freedom ends where my nose begins, which is a popular way of understanding this principle, even though socialists do not abide by this principle. What we rightfully share in a free society is our freedom, not the results of our efforts, unless, of course, we voluntarily choose to do so. Here again is Alistair Williams, illustrating once again what eventually happens when people are forced to share, quote-unquote, the fruits of their labors. As soon as a country goes socialist, the first thing they do is they start murdering all the rich people because they're just so pissed off because they're just skimming off the system, they've got these big houses, we're going to kill them, and then we're going to just live in their house, and then we'll be rich. Okay, brilliant. Here's the problem with that. As it turns out, some rich people actually work hard. I know, I know you find it hard to believe, not every rich person just rolled out of bed into a giant pile of money. A lot of times... Rich people are the most productive people in society because they're all psychos. They want their money. They want your money. They want her money. They're going to f***ing get it. Okay, and they're just like demons of productivity. And yeah, most of them, some of them are evil. I was going to say most of them are evil. Some of them are evil. Yeah, because they don't care. They just want your money. But they will invent things to steal your money. Okay, they will, they will invent things that make life easier so that they can steal all the money, right? They're productive people. You can't just murder them all and expect things to get better. As a matter of fact, things get worse. Like back in Russia, when they went socialist, okay, the first thing they did was they murdered all the rich people, or they put all the rich people in prison. Well, back in the day in Russia, the number one industry was farming. So they murdered all the rich farmers. Or to put it another way, they murdered the most productive farmers all of them can you see where this is going to go wrong yet right, and then the winter came and they were like um, does anyone know how to produce like 50 times the amount of food that we currently have everyone went no no no, no. We, we, I knew a guy that could do that but we we chopped his head off I mean the idea behind socialism is everyone works right well if you kill a farmer you know what happens? They stop working. Immediately. They don't do their notice period. They don't do anything like that. You dead a farmer. The turkeys don't go, we got this. We got this. We've been waiting for this opportunity. We know where the feed is. We'll see you in November. Right? The whole thing rubs out. 
And this is another madness that comes with socialism. You start out, in the first week, we're going to murder all the rich people. Okay, so you murder all the rich farmers. Great idea. Okay, and then things don't get better. Right, things get worse. As a country. Okay, if you murder all the rich people in a country, country and then move into the rich people's houses, the country doesn't get better, does it? You're just swapping stuff around inside the country. Okay? And if you give 15 people a farm and say, listen, this don't belong to no one, work as hard as you like or don't work as hard as you like, do whatever you want, whatever happens, however much work you do, you're going to get the same amount at the end of the day. Guess what? People don't get up at 5 a.m. and start tearing into the work. Of course, there's some people do. Some people do. They're the people that work at the local council and do overtime for no extra money and turn up at four and like, yes, we want everything to run properly. They're the people that you're going to put in charge. I believe we call them Jobsworth in this country. Imagine a team of them in charge. And you wonder why a lot of people get executed. Give them ultimate power. Go on. Go on, watch what happens. I see them, the ticket inspector on the train. You know what the ticket inspector on the train said to me the other day? This is how the smallest bit of power goes to someone's head. The guy is beeping everyone's Oyster card. We've got electric tickets. So you just beep someone's Oyster card and it just tells you as the ticket inspector, this person has money on their card. It doesn't tell you where they're going. It just tells you that they've clocked in and at some point they're going to clock out. So this ticket inspector, he's beeping everyone. Beep, beep, beep. He does like eight people when he comes to me. He goes, beep. And it shows I've got money on my card. And he goes, where are you going? (laughs) I said, sorry? He goes, where are you going? I said, about my business. He goes, what? I said, I'm going about my business like everyone else in the carriage. He goes, you're not going to tell me where I'm going. I said, well, I will if you ask him and her and all these other people first. And then he goes to go. I said, sorry, mate, where are you going? <laughs> he goes, I'm going down the train. I said, all right. <laughs> right? They are the people that come to power under socialism if you are not careful. And you wonder why everyone starts going to prison. So back in Russia, this is the history part. So the socialists took over, they murdered all the rich farmers, and then they were like, what are we going to do? We haven't got enough food. And somebody went, I know, why don't five million of us starve to death? And they went, yeah, let's do that. That's a great idea. Um, Why did they decide to do that? Because the people in the meeting weren't the ones that were going to be starving to death. Okay, they had all these discussions in the towns where they didn't make the food. The food was made in the countryside. So then they sent the trucks out to the countryside and they said, listen, just give us all the food that you've made. And they went, all the food? And they went, yeah, yeah, all the food. They went, what about the, the food that I and my family needs to eat, the people that made the food? They said, just give us all the food. So they put all the food in the trucks and they were like, well, what's my family going to eat? And they were like, see you later, mate. Have a good one, son. Enjoy the winter. Didn't people complain? Didn't the farmers complain? Yes. Of course they complained. Do you know how they stopped them complaining? They f***ing murdered them. 
And again, you someone starts complaining and you murder them, guess what? They stop complaining. They sharp immediately. Sometimes they murder people just for the fun of it, just to let everyone else know, hey, you know, that guy got murdered. Have you got any complaints? No, I didn't think so. That was just the start. The five million people starving to death was just the start. When they get to the, the death toll on socialism, they go, was it true that it killed a hundred million people? And you go, that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, because these problems snowball. At the start of the socialist revolution in Russia, they were murdering all the rich people. Okay? At, but that, at the start, that meant if you had a great big farm or you had a big house, you probably got murdered or imprisoned or whatever. And then things started getting worse for the reasons we've already described. And what do you think the... The ticket inspectors running the whole thing said when things started getting worse. Do you think they said, oh yeah, you know what, we're actually wrong and socialism was a bad idea and this is all because of us? No. No, they went, we haven't got all the rich people yet. We're going to start recategorizing rich people. So it started going down. At the start of the revolution, it was like, you have a big house. And then afterwards, it was like, well, do you have a tractor? Then afterwards, it was like, well, have you ever employed anyone ever? At one point in the Russian Revolution, they were going out arresting all the rich peasants. The rich peasants. What? Imagine someone knocking on your door. Hello, mate. We're here to arrest all the tallest dwarves. Hand them over. <laughs> but this is real life. You can check it out. Go check out what happened in Venezuela. They're eating cat food in Venezuela. I don't mean out of a tin. They're just, if you find a cat, that's your food. I wish I was joking. Well, sometimes humor is the best way to psychologically handle life's greatest horrors and tragedies, isn't it? You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. When Alistair Williams says that as soon as a country goes socialist, the first thing they do is start murdering all the rich people. I imagine that many people might disagree with that and say, for example, well, Canada's a socialist country. What with our universal communist health care system and other state-provided transfers of wealth. But nobody's murdering the rich people. But they forget that Canada, like all quote-unquote socialist countries that appear to be functional, are actually mixed economies, the mix being an economic arrangement that is partially socialist and partially capitalist. Capitalism creates the wealth, socialism redistributes and then eventually destroys the wealth. It is not metaphysically possible to keep the two opposing concepts in some kind of balance or in the middle of some imaginary political spectrum, as so many people believe. And the price paid for socialism always begins by being paid by the middle class, not by the very poor and not by the very rich, until it runs its course. Socialism is not, and never has been, about alleviating the conditions of poverty or about helping the poor, despite all the rhetoric you hear to that end. Socialism is about egalitarianism. That's where the rubber hits the road. And egalitarianism is the true race for the bottom. After all, when it comes to wealth and poverty, it's all relative. And that's why everybody ends up equally at the bottom in a socialist system. They start recategorizing the rich. Do you own a tractor? Did you ever employ someone? They started arresting the richest peasants, notes Williams. 
Well, you know, inequality is not a problem at all in a society where even the poor at least have the necessities of life and an opportunity to make it better. And it has only been achieved in the capitalist countries. But I have to say I was particularly offended by William suggesting that, quote, productive people are psychos, some are evil, they just want your money and will invent things to steal your money, end quote. Wow. I mean, how ironic. It comes from the failure to distinguish between what is voluntary and what is forced. And, of course, from ignoring the fact that government is an agency of force. When we talk about government and we talk about governing, what we're talking about is what will we do with the collective use of force? Productive people do not steal from their customers. They trade, value for value. It's a win-win scenario since each party in a free market transaction is free to trade or not. If I don't want your product, I won't buy it. You can't force me to buy it unless you're a socialist. How straightforward and simple is that? Maybe Williams was trying to be humorous or sarcastic. But given the context of his other statements, I don't think that's the case. For example, he says... Then things get worse. As a country, if you steal the rich people's property, the country doesn't get better. You're just swapping things around within the country. Well, that's demonstrably not correct and reflects a belief shared by most totalitarians and dictators. That's why they always end up going to war. They see no gain except that stolen from others outside their own countries. A country that practices free market principles only within its own borders will become wealthy on its own merits regardless of the destructive philosophies of theft practiced by all the nations around them. The harm done to the country is caused simply by allowing stealing, not by swapping things around internally. All voluntary transactions represent a creation of wealth, even within a given jurisdiction. The only reason that people voluntarily trade is to gain. If I buy a newspaper for a dollar, it's because I value that newspaper more than the dollar coin that I trade for it, and vice versa. This is what is meant by win-win and by wealth creation. The mere production of goods and services that nobody wants to trade for voluntarily does not increase the wealth of the nation. In fact, it destroys it. Now, I loved William's anecdote about the ticket inspector and the kind of abuse of power that inevitably occurs when people of that mentality are permitted to have any power. That may be a far more frightening aspect of socialists and socialism than any of the mere economic consequences. After all, the negative economic consequences of socialism are secondary to that abuse of power that allows them. If you give 15 people a farm and everyone gets the same regardless of input, (laughs) well... Duh. Who will want to do any work if the rewards are all the same? But since there are no rewards of any kind without the work, and since collectivism has already eliminated any real incentive to work, guess what? Some form of slavery, serfdom, or forced labor is the only way to produce anything. And that, at its heart, is the true nature of socialism, both in theory and practice. To see the practice, we can look to history. To understand the theory, we must rely on philosophy. Now, as we go to our next break, and before returning to a final comment by Alistair Williams, on this side of the bumper we'll be hearing an excerpt from the March 3rd Prager U. Candace Owens show, which featured her interview with comedian and actress Roseanne Barr. It's about socialism and capitalism, 
And you know, I could sense throughout that entire segment that Candace was really holding back and politely biting her lip, since I know she doesn't share the views as expressed by Barr on this subject, but didn't really want to make that point of difference the focus of her interview. Barr has a very different take on socialism, having been a lifelong socialist, and who is only now coming to the point where her unknown ideal is becoming horrifyingly known to her, and it's not what she expected. But even as she entertains a political shift to the right, she is still very much a leftist in her thinking, something that doesn't just disappear overnight. And, you know, I was full socialist my whole life. My father, my grandfather, socialists, and... um, Never picked up a math book, not once. mm -mm. (laughs) Who, my parents... No, and then, I mean, this is not your father's socialism, I always say. Because back then, when I was a kid, and it was about socialism, it was about the safety net. And it wasn't about hating Jews, and it wasn't about hating Israel. It wasn't about imperialism. It was about, hey, we we need to be paid fairly for our work and have union protection. And I still don't see anything wrong with that. I still like that. But it went way too far. And uh, it went straight into communism. Americans, yeah, it always does. But I still, at that point, I had the idea that there could be, you know, an American, a social safety net for Americans, working Americans, working class people. And now I'm like, now we got to get rid of the whole damn money system and start over, throw it out and start completely over. What do you mean? I I just, I think, well, I'm going to make a video about how I see a new system that works for people. And you don't think capitalism works for people? I do, but I don't like how capitalism doesn't actually figure in the true cost of things. Okay. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I don't think that there should be a money system based on slavery. I think slavery should be illegal in all of its forms. It shouldn't exist at this time on the earth. So give me an example. Like, Are you saying in the United States or are you saying... In the world. Okay. And uh, it shouldn't be, capitalism should not be a race to the bottom, which they always call free markets. But I think it needs to be regulated so that it can't have anything to do with slave markets. That can't be part of free markets. Uh, what's that book, the, the book about the Amistad? That, you know, that says it right there. We can't use the high seas to move human cargo. Just put some laws like that in. Right. Make war illegal, too, while you're at it. Right. And let's like let's change capitalism so that you're actually investing in good things and people's lives and their health, because they do just the opposite. But they never figure in the cost. They never figure in the cost to communities or humanity, and that needs to be figured in to the whole free markets, whatever you're going to call it. So you're saying, like, are you talking about on a global scale, like if America, I'm just giving an example here, if America is buying sneakers from China and there are kids in factories getting paid three cents an hour. And they're jumping out the window to kill themselves to make Apple iPhones. Right. I mean, no. No, not when other people have $400 billion. I mean, it's just common sense. I I would not, you know, I, I used to say there should be a maximum wage. But uh, And I kind of still think that at, at a certain point, you owe something back to humanity. If you're going to get like, you know, what, $500 billion, you sort of owe something. Uh, 
but I don't I don't think that we should tax anybody. I, I don't think that socialist way of we must tax 90% of, you know, no, because I already pay 46% of everything I make to taxes. Right. And I don't want it to go to Jerry Brown. Right. You know, I'm thinking of moving out of here. Yeah, I mean, I'm seriously, like, this, that's what's happening. We're seeing a flight away from California. No, because... I'm just talking about something really that needs to happen at this in this century when we have this great technology that can actually solve problems, and we need to do that. We need to figure out a way to get food to the hungry kids, and that should be our priority. And are you saying so? Do you do you employ like an America First policy when you talk about that, or do you or do you think that we should just be t solving all of the world problems? No, I'm America First. Okay. Right now. Yeah, I am too. Because we have to. It has to start here. Right. We're the hope of the world. I'll tell you why you can't criticize socialism. This is why you can't criticize socialism. Find one of these ponces, one of these, I am a historian and I am pro-socialism, and say, look, what about the 100 million dead people as a result of socialism? And they'll all say the same thing. They'll go, oh no, that, no, that was communism. That, that was communism there. And this is how they get out of it. When everyone has the idea to go socialist, they go, oh, this is socialism, this is socialism, right? As soon as everyone starts hitting each other in the face with a spade, they go, ah, oh, it's gone communist. Communism crept in there. That's unfortunate. You might be thinking, well, what's the difference between socialism and communism, right? Socialism is the idea that we're all going to share. That's the word for it. Communism is the word for when they try to do that and everyone starts hitting each other in the face with a spade. Okay, that's the only difference. As soon as a socialist country starts unwinding, they'll be like, ah, communism coming the back door again. Ah, oh, I guess we need to just try this again somewhere else. Because this one's gone. And let's say the difference between a socialist and a communist is when people start getting brutally murdered. Right, if you take over a country and everyone starts sharing and no one gets killed, that's socialism. Okay? And if everyone starts brutally murdering each other, that's communism. Okay? And... This is the thing. When you take over by, via a bloody revolution, you're basically saying, the person who is the best at murdering is going to be in charge. That's how you take over a country. All you've got to do is murder all the people at the top. So you're going to put the best murderer in charge. And that's the sad thing. It starts off with, you know, we're just going to get rid of the riches, and then it ends up with families turning on families because things start getting worse and people go why are things getting worse and people start accusing people go well this guy he doesn't like communism he's trying to hold on to his possessions and stuff so they go alright well we'll execute him and they had situations where children are turning in their parents because they're worried their parents might turn them in and no one wants to get turned in so everyone starts getting turned in. And then you live in a culture of fear. For years, millions of people dying. Does it sound good yet? The Utopia. Both Alistair Williams and Roseanne Barr made one single correct observation about socialism. 
that invariably and inevitably it leads to outright communism. But both socialism and communism are the very same thing by definition. And I've got dictionaries where the definition of each term is exactly the same, word for word. But a simpler way to make the distinction between them, if any can be made at all, is like this. Socialism is like jumping off a cliff to your death and represents that period of time between the time you actually jumped and eventually hit the bottom. Communism is when you hit the bottom. The outrageous thing is that Roseanne Barr openly admits that socialism, quote, always, end quote, ends up at communism, yet still idealizes socialism. Are you beginning to see the socialist disease for the social disease it truly is? Barr sees socialism as being, quote, about being paid fairly for our work and about having union protection, and I still don't see anything wrong with that, but it went too far straight into communism, she says. Well, what does she mean by union protection? Protection from what? From capitalism, from free markets, from competition. Three things she refers to as slavery of all things. Capitalism does not tolerate slavery, as anyone who even took a slightest look at America's history would discover. It was the capitalist North that freed the slaves of the agrarian South. Hello. Make war illegal too while you're at it, says Barr. I mean, we actually have great technology and we need to figure out a way to get food to the hungry kids and that needs to be a priority, she says. Wow. Roseanne Barr sounded exactly like the mad scientist Captain Nemo from the fantasy movie Mysterious Island in the opener of our show today. He wanted to end war too, but his plan of creating giant livestock and giant poultry and giant forms of other foods would change nothing as a plan to end war or starvation. Capitalists had already achieved every one of those objectives a long time before that movie was made. They did it by producing greater quantities of the same size foods we already have. Imagine wheat 40 feet high, sheep the size of cattle, says the captain. Yeah, but we already have cattle. <laughs> and how has that helped world starvation and war? In fact, I would argue that cattle are a reason to have a war in the absence of free trade. It's not as if every individual is going to raise their own livestock and grow their own crops. Honestly, I don't think that the Roseanne Bars of the world, the socialistically minded, ever followed the logic of their horror fantasies through to the end. I mean, what happens after you eat your giant cow and your 40-foot-high strand of wheat? Production is a constant and perpetual process, just like eating, sleeping, and procreating are. It doesn't just end... And none of this would change in any way the unalterable law of supply and demand. And as if to add insult to injury, Barr says, quote, In China, they're jumping out the window to make Apple iPhones. I used to say there should be a maximum wage. At a certain point, you sort of owe something back to humanity. But the socialist way of taxing it back, I don't like because I have to pay 46% taxes. I'm going to move, end quote. First, China is not a capitalist country, Roseanne. <laughs> it is not even a socialist one. It is communist. And the idea that productive and successful business people owe something back to humanity when they've already done more than their fair share by providing humanity with the goods and services that human beings can afford to use is offensive in the extreme. See how productive people are always being compared to criminals in some way? Isn't that amazing? By what possible code of morality can Barr suggest such an obscenity? 
And then of all things, after that pronouncement, she has the unmitigated gall to say that she doesn't like being taxed at 46%. When that is her toll for paying what she thinks that she should owe back to humanity to use her own BS. Uh, I tell you, the hypocrisy is simply overflowing. Barr said that capitalism works for people, but I don't like how capitalism doesn't actually figure in the true cost of things. <laughs> well, the truth of the economics of the matter is that only capitalism figures in the true cost of things. Socialism never does, nor can it. That's why all socialist spending creates public deficits and debts, which puts the true cost of socialism onto our youth and onto our future generations. What an evil legacy to leave behind. And just to round off this point, I refer to an essay written by the late Murray Hopper. And Murray was a lifelong socialist until he read Ayn Rand and he became a landlord and a stock investor. And he also became a founding member of the Freedom Party of Ontario, for whom he wrote the following insightful analysis called Socialism and the War on Wealth. Quote, A new Democrat MPP once proclaimed that excess wealth should not be allowed to exist and that wealth should be redistributed through a more equitable tax system. That such an obvious and evil contradiction in terms went so easily unchallenged is truly remarkable. When a private citizen attempts to redistribute the wealth of others, we call the act by its true name, theft. When a politician does exactly the same thing, he calls it by an entirely different name, equity. Thus, by some mysterious alchemy, stealing is transmuted from the base metal of criminal activity to the pure gold of high and noble purpose. Author George Gilder in his book Wealth and Poverty describes the inevitable outcome of this political deception this way. Quote, One of the little probed mysteries of social history is society's hostility to its greatest benefactors, the producers of wealth. On every continent and in every epoch, the people who have excelled in creating wealth have been the victims of some of society's greatest brutalities. Pointing to the fate of the Jews in Hitler's Germany, the pogroms against the Russian kulaks, the slaughter of the, of the Igbo tribesmen in Nigeria, the killing of almost one million Chinese in Indonesia, etc., etc., Gilder continues, Everywhere the horrors and bodies pile up in the world's perennial struggle to rid itself of the menace of riches of the shopkeeper, the bankers, the merchants, the traders, the entrepreneurs, at the same time that the toll also mounts in victims of unnecessary famine and poverty. End quote. Well, that's it for today's round of Socialism versus Capitalism. Join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color color into black and white under the bedclothes everything will be all right who are you i am pancho hernando gonzalez enriquez rodriguez ex-presidente de la república de Ecuarico. and i'm george washington ex-president of the united states ah you have been exiled too no no come on get your hands up now and tell me the truth who are you i am telling you the truth until yesterday i am president of the republic of Ecuarico. Today, ex-president. A real-life president? Oh, I'm real pleased to meet you. <laughs> pleased to meet you. Now, you get your hands off, George. <laughs> I'm just kidding about being George Washington. I'm Gilligan. What is in that basket? Food? Your berries. You want some? Keep your hands off and drop the basket. <laughs> no hands off. Drop the basket. <laughs> okay. Now, I eat. 
I suppose now you want me to take you to my leader, right? Wrong. In my country, there's a saying, he who has gone is the leader. 